church, we are pressing on our journey through the book of Revelation. Uh, some of you, this will be your first time in our, in our little journey here through Revelation. We have finished the first two churches of the seven churches dealt with in Revelation 2 and 3. As we've seen, the Lord has a very different message for each church. You know, this week I listened to so many people on the radio talking about different things. And there's one message I kept hearing again and again. They kept saying, I'm so confused. I'm so confused about who to vote for in the election. I'm so confused. What should I believe? Is there going to be another ice age or is the polar ice cap going to melt? Should I believe in evolution or should I believe in creation? Should I believe in marriage for everybody or marriage for a man and a woman? There's a lot of confusion in our world, amen? In your own life, there may be confusion today. You may have some choices to make. What do I do with my life? How do I go forward? What's the best way for me to use my time? Perhaps you're a student and the future is still far ahead of you. And you're not sure what to do with that future, how to prepare for it. Maybe you're way past the student days. You say, you know what, Lord? I've lived 70 amazing years, but I've got another 30 or 40, maybe 50 to go. What do I do with those years? How do I redeem that time? Maybe you're still in your 20s and you think, I've got lots of time to figure out this life thing. No, you don't. Because, you know, sorry, 35 is middle age. Did you guys realize that? Somebody reminded me this week, 35 is middle age. I said, okay, if 35 is middle age, what am I? And they said, blessedly, almost dead. And I said, thank you so much. I appreciate that. 50 is not that bad, although it is about halfway to my goal of 100. Actually, I want to have my face on that morning schmuckers thing on Good Morning America. And turning 100, Richard Stidham, pastor in North Carolina. Yes, still preaching at 100. So the world is full of confusion. But God gives us an answer for that. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Conflict causes us to choose. Sometimes confusion comes into our life because of some conflict that we have. But when conflict enters our life, we have to make choices what to do. Do we continue fighting or do we just quit? Sometimes you come to a fork in the road. You have to choose one direction or another. And you can't stay in the middle. You know why? If you stay at the crossroads, nothing happens and your life goes into park. And nobody wants their life to stop, amen? Everybody wants their life to move forward and go on. Look what it says. Revelation 2, 12 and 13. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamon, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. Wow. What an opening statement. Of course, as I said before, Jesus writes to each church because each church represents a type of person. Now, we saw in the very first church, the Ephesian church, what was their problem? They were strong. They stood for the right things. But they had lost their love for each other and for the Lord, right? That was a problem. They had lost their first love. They were no longer in love with the Lord and in love with each other. They were just going through the motions. Now, what was going on in the next church? Yes, yeah, Smyrna, what was going on with them? They were under severe persecution. Did God say anything bad about them? No. So they were not suffering because they did something wrong. 
They were suffering because they did something right. That second church is very rare. Only two churches of all seven had nothing negative said about them. But now we've come to the third church, the church of Pergamon. Okay, the word Pergamon means marriage. How many of you guys are married? Raise your hand. Be proud. Don't be embarrassed. We know you're married. Put your hands up there. Okay, that's what I thought. Never be, never be ashamed of the person you're married to. Otherwise, you will not sleep so easily at night. Because when you're asleep and you wake up and they're looking at you, you're in trouble. Okay, the word Pergamon means marriage. But it also means a search for power, a search for position, a search for authority. How can you reconcile those two things together? Well, when you're married, husbands and wives, does the husband try to dominate his wife if he wants to live? No. Does the wife try to boss her husband around if she wants to stay married happily? No, of course not. Women never do that kind of thing, ever. That's what I thought, yes. So you got to somehow reconcile this idea that Pergamon has to do with marriage, has to do with union, has to do with togetherness, but it also has to do with this search for power, the search for authority. Now, how can those things be brought together? So write to the angel or the pastor of the church at Pergamon, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, now I told you, when Jesus identifies himself, pay attention to how he does it. This is a unique weapon. Many swords in the ancient world had one edge that was sharpened and one edge that was blunt. You know, especially like cutlasses and sabers and such. That was so that one edge was for defense and one edge was for offense. A double-edged sword had only one purpose. That was to attack. It was not meant for defense. It was meant to attack something. So already Jesus has said, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now those of you who follow the New Testament, where do we see the picture of a two-edged sword coming into play? Talk about God's word being a sharp two-edged sword dividing to the bone and the marrow, right? Okay, so we have some idea where this image comes from. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Okay, right now we have the problem. They live in a place where Satan's throne is. What was Satan's throne? Okay, well, let's fall back and look at the city of Pergamon. Pergamon was an interesting place. It was home to the temple of Zeus or the altar of Zeus, one of the largest temples in the ancient world. It was the center of the worship of the king of the gods. So maybe that's the throne of Satan, this place where a false god was placed on a high place. It was on top of the highest point in the city. You could see the temple of Zeus from everywhere. Now, there was also something else there. For those of you who are on the medical field, <laughs> you knew I was going to get you sooner or later, didn't you? There's a cat named Escalapus. Anybody know who Escalapus was? The father of medicine? Father, well, basically, he was the god of healing. He was a doctor. He was a medical person who had great skills. His father had been a false god, Apollo, and he had great medical skills. Well, this one day, this doctor, Escalapus, brought somebody back from the dead and made Zeus really mad. So Zeus killed him, but then felt really bad because he had done so many good things. He brought him back as the god of healing. Now, Escalapus had a symbol. He carried a large wooden staff with a snake on it. Anybody ever seen that in the medical field? You've all seen the caduceus, right? The caduceus are the two snakes that weave around the pole. 
Anybody ever encountered a snake on a pole that had to do with healing anywhere in the Bible? Exactly. The story of Escalapis comes far after, after the story of Moses in the wilderness. Remember the people sin? And they say, okay, put a serpent, which is a symbol of their affliction, put it on a pole, lift it up high. If anybody's bitten by these fiery serpents, they can look up to the pole and be healed, be saved. It was a symbol of Jesus who was lifted up, and when we look to him, we are saved from our sin, right? So the Greeks hear this story, and they put it into their legends, the, the, the rod of Escalapis. Well, Pergamon was home to one of the medical schools of the ancient world. There was a temple to Escalapis in Pergamon. Now what they did is they put you in the temple on a bed just above a bunch of snakes. Does this make sense to anybody? If you've been in the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee, there are still snake-handling churches up there. And they're a lot more like this than they are like this. They're a lot more like these people than they are us peoples, because they believe in handling snakes for some strange reason. Anyways, so Pergamon had this worship of doctors, this worship of medicine, this thing of the doctors could heal anybody. They could raise the dead. They were all powerful. Not that I'm picking on doctors and nurses, but sometimes they do get a God complex. Can I get an amen from any nurse that ever worked for that doctor? Yeah, it does happen. So sometimes this false throne is lifted up. It was also the center of emperor worship. It's a huge temple to emperors in Pergamon. So this throne of Satan could have been any one of these things, or it could be all of them. It could represent a culture where people worship doctors, medicine, myths, legends, all these other things that took the place of the worship of the one true God. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith even in the days of Antipas. Here's a cool thing. We don't know who Antipas was. Antipas was not a disciple. I mean, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a church leader. He was Antipas. His name could have been Larry. His name could have been Ken. Name could have been Dan or, or Robert or Richard. Dodie. He was just a person faithful to Christ unto his death. Look how what it calls him. My faithful witness. The word witness in Greek is the word martyr. Sound like any word you know? Martyr. A martyr is simply a witness. You don't have to die to be a martyr. You just have to be a witness to who Jesus Christ is in order to be a martyr, a witness of who God is. Just a minute ago, Larry came up and performed an act of martyr, a witness by singing that song, by making that statement, you were witnessing to who Christ is. That's what it takes to be a witness. You don't got to die, but you've got to live for something. And that's what they're praising these people for. You're being faithful to my name, even to the point of death, like Brother Ad, um, Antipas, even though you live in the shadow of all these false cults. You see, the people at Pergamon had to make a choice. Pergamon was unique in this fact. In all of the Roman provinces, you had to go to the Roman governor to put someone to death, right? Yes, say yes. Okay. Everybody that survived Easter knows this one. 
They couldn't kill Jesus, could they? Say no. Let's try this again. They couldn't kill Jesus, could they? Because they had to go to Pilate, right? I love y'all so much. Okay, here's the deal. Pergamon wasn't like that. It was such an important center of emperor worship, such an important political center. Pergamon actually had the rare privilege of being able to kill anybody for a capital offense without going to the Roman government. Do you see a switch? Paul was saved in Judea because they couldn't kill him. They had to send him to Caesar. In Pergamon, they did not have to send you to Caesar. They could just kill you. Now, do you see why the Lord is praising them? You are faithful to my name because you know you can die at any moment. They can kill you anytime they please. You're faithful to my name, even to death, like this guy Antipas. Antipas. It's a terrible name to give somebody. Anyways, that makes it a little more difficult. We talked last week about being faithful, standing up to pressure, standing up to persecution, standing up to those who might look down on you for your faith in Jesus. That's what they were doing. So if he was this witness, he was this martyr, he was setting the example. And they did that in the midst of all these other false temples. If they had gone anywhere, if they had gone to the temple of Escalapis, they would be accepted. If they went up to the mountains and they went to the the temple of Zeus, they'd be accepted. If they went and they took a pinch of incense and threw it at the uh, emperor's figure into the fire, they'd be accepted. Is there any pressure in our culture today to compromise? Where's the biggest pressure in your life? Don't say it, but I want you to identify it right now because I want you to identify what it is that you're pressured to do to compromise your faith in Jesus. I believe we live in a very Pergamon world. I believe every profession that requires education, every profession that requires a certain degree of education is subject to the Pergamon persecution. I just coined a phrase, yay. The Pergamon persecution. Because you will be persecuted in school, young lady, if you don't tow their corporate line. And their corporate line is... Men evolved from the goo to the zoo to you. All right? That's what evolution is. Goo, zoo, you. And you know what? I have to admit, I've met many people in my life who didn't get far beyond the zoo. They really didn't. I mean, some of them are still living down there in that animalistic state. But you see, we can't accept evolution, number one, because it fails every solid scientific investigation of it. Harvard, Yale, Princeton already gave it up. They said it's a failed theory. They said it doesn't work. But they still teach it. And they still expect the student to give it back on the test. So if you're in school, you're going to face persecution. You've got to decide right now how you're going to deal with that persecution. What are you going to do about those test questions that ask you to compromise? I'll tell you what one person did. On her test, this is way back when, she said, they said, How do you explain the existence of the human race? Use the textbook as an example. She said, according to the textbook on this page, it says this. And according to the textbook on this page, it says this. That's how she answered the question. The professor knew she didn't believe it. The professor knew she was just regurgitating the book, but he couldn't do a thing about it. You know why? Because she said, on the book, it says this. She didn't say, I believe. That's sometimes how you avoid it. 
Because just by stating what the book says, you let the whole world know that you don't believe that. Go on in the medical field. You guys work for doctors. You work in hospitals. You work in a field of scientific endeavor. You live in the Pergamon world. And there was a pressure to conform to the teachings of Aesculapius, a false god who could raise the dead. How do you guys stand up for your faith in a hospital? When you're faced with medical tests and, and, and doctors and surgeons and those who would reinforce this idea that man is nothing more than a biological organism, a mechanism that can be taken apart and studied and repaired. How do you deal with that? Let's go on. I'll show you how. Revelation 2, 14 through 16. Yes, conflict causes us to choose what we're going to believe, and some choices are painful. Understand that some choices are painful. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against you with, underline at church, the sword of my mouth. You saw that at the opening. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I told you, that's an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. He says right now, if you don't repent, then that sword is not against your enemies, it's against you. Ah, but what's he talking about? I have a few things against you. You have some there. Now, he's not talking to the city. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to the collective body of believers. Now, here's the thing. I have a lot of family members who are not Christians, and I don't expect them to talk like Christians. I don't expect them to walk like Christians. If I go in the house and they're stoned and they're drunk, you know what? I expect that. Because when I go to see my family, I know that half of them are in prison and the other half are stoned. That's just that's one side of the family. We don't talk about them too much. But that's, that's really what they are. They've been sitting in the same busted down trailer for the last 40 years, stoned and drunk. And that's where they still are today. They're my age. They've never had a job. They've never left them hills. They've never left that still. They're still making moonshine in them hills in Georgia. So if anybody needs anything, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. No, don't go there. I still have kin making lightning up in the hills. And that's just who they are. You know, I love them to death, but they're psychotic. Even I don't go visit them on the weekends because you get shot up there. Anyways, you have some in the church, he says, who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Ah, what is he talking about? I'll tell you. Numbers 31.8 should be up on the screen right now. Numbers 31.8. Along with the others slain by them, they killed the Midianite kings, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Her, Zeba, and the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Baor, with the sword. Yet they are the ones who, at Balaam's advice, incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident, so that the plague came against the Lord's, uh, Lord's community. What's that mean? Well, we all know who Balaam was. He was a prophet of the Lord. And Balak called him and said, I want you to curse these people, Israel. And he said, just a minute, i got to check with the boss. Balaam goes and prays and says, Lord, can I go curse the Israelites? They're going to give me a lot of money if I curse them. And God says, don't do it. Don't you curse my people. 
They're blessed by me. He comes back out and says, guys, can't, can't do it. Can't go with you. Sorry, I can't. He said, well, just come and see. So he hops on his donkey, and he's riding off to see the king. And God knows what's in his heart. God knows that Balaam's going to try a fast one and try and curse the people. So suddenly the donkey starts going left and right. Remember the story, guys? Donkey starts going left and right, and he starts beating it. And uh, finally the donkey stops and says, why are you beating me? Notice that Balaam doesn't flinch. He says, because you won't go where I want you to go. I'm thinking, no, wait a second. This donkey just talked to you, and you don't flinch. Something's wrong here. He's so mad, he's not noticing the animals talking to him. He says, I'm beating you because you're not going where I want you to go. Then he sees the angel of the Lord with a drawn weapon right in front of him. He says, dude, if I went straight, this angel would take your head off. I just saved your behind. He realizes that God was going to kill him for disobedience, and it was only because the donkey could see the angel that he didn't die. Now, we poo-poo that story. We think, oh, that didn't happen. That's just a children's story. No, that's real. Shows up over here. But now, if he was obedient, if he blessed Israel three times, why did God have him killed? Real simple. Look at Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9. It says this, Holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by their teachings, what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Okay, now we're talking about somebody doing something dishonestly to get money. Of course, in Titus, he's warning them about false prophets, false teachers of the law, who are doing what they need to to deceive the people. But he tells Titus, Titus, you have to refute them. You have to fight them. You have to go against them. What does that have to do with Balaam? Real simple. If you look at the end of Balaam's life, which we saw back in Numbers, before he left Balak, the king, he says, king, I can't curse them. But if you want to get the Israelites, if you want to take care of them, this is what you do. Send in your hottest women in their shortest skirts. Let them bring in some wine. Let them bring in some meat sacrificed to idols. Seduce the men away after them, and you will deceive the entire camp. That's why back in Numbers, it says they killed him because at his advice, he led the people into idolatry. He didn't curse them. So technically, he kept the word of the Lord, right? Technically. But he taught the enemies of Israel how to sidetrack them, how to deceive them. That's why back here in Titus, he says you have to hold to the faithful message. You have to refute those who, like Balaam, are spreading enough knowledge to deceive the people. He says it's necessary to silence them. You see, way back up here in Revelation, where we just were a few minutes ago, he says, you have people who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who are teaching people that it's okay to go to the temples, that it's okay to eat in the temple of Aesculapius. It's okay to go to the temple of Zeus. It's okay to go pinch some incense and throw it at the emperor's statue. Guys, do we ever make excuses for doing things that we know are wrong? Now, be honest with yourself, if not with us. Do we make excuses and say, well, this is part of my culture. This is part of my custom. This is part of my family. 
This is part of who I am. I went to a few family reunions back in the hills, okay? And whenever you go to a family reunion and all you see are shotguns and stills, you know you're in trouble. And my daddy warned me, son, you see this area? Don't leave it. I said, why? He says, you get shot. Okay. When you're 12, that leaves a huge impression on you. And the whole thing was, is you go to a family reunion like that, and all your second and third cousins, which are not off territory, you know, in the mountains, they wanted to go off in, in, in the weeds with you. And I'll be honest with you, that's just creepy. But that's how it works back in the hills. And the, the still's right over there, and the lightning's flowing right there, and they don't care if you're 13, go get you a glass. You might go blind, but go get you a glass. You see, when I went to my family reunions, mom and daddy had to keep me on a short leash because my cousins were crazy. They were crazy. They said, it's okay, it's family. No, it's not okay. It's against the word of the Lord. And you see, here's the thing. Sometimes we make excuses why we do things, why we say things, because we say it's just part of who we are. It's my culture. It's my family. It's how I've always done it. Well, guess what? God doesn't care about your family. He doesn't care about your culture. He doesn't care about how you've always done it. And I know that's offensive. And guess what? God doesn't care. He calls us out from among the peoples of the earth to be something better. Last night we looked at the church. And the word for the church is ecclesia. Just like the Tagalog word, inglesia. The church. The called out ones. Those who are set apart for something special. Let me ask you, church. Look at the world outside. Look at the people you see on TV. Not that I'm picking on the Kardashians or the Lohans or anybody else. Do you really honestly want to be like that? Do you want to spend half your time in rehab and the other half, other half of the time running over people with your car? Why do we idolize people whose lives are a train wreck? Why do we idolize people in business who lie, cheat, steal, crush the little folks just to get ahead? Why do we look at people and go, wow, look at that house, look at that car, look at that bank account, I want that, and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Why do we look up to people like that? You see, they were living in Pergamon, a wealthy city, a powerful city. All they had to do to get ahead was compromise, give up their principles, cheat a little bit. Remember the movie about 10 years back before some of you were born about the, about the wealthy guy that comes to this guy and says, you know, your wife's really, really hot. I'll give you a million, a million dollars if I can sleep with her one night. And at the end, she does it. And I'm thinking to myself, this was a movie? Why? Did y'all see that one? Yeah, you did? So did I. Dumb, dumb, dumb movie. And supposedly it was a true story. Yeah, a decent proposal. That's it. Thank you. No, <laughs> I remember it too. And the thing is, that's not in my notes. I just remembered it right here, so it's, it's all good. God was just working. But think about this. It is an indecent proposal to ask a woman for the sake of something as trivial and low as money to break her covenant of marriage. Now, do you think that marriage could be saved? No. You might get a million bucks, but you lose everything. Everything in the process. 
Yeah, you can compromise with the world. When I was a kid and you went to the prom, we had a saying, dance with the one who brung you. Not good grammar, but a good meaning. If you've gotten this far in life with the people you've gotten this far in life with, stay with them. It's better. It's safer. It's stronger. The church at Pergamon had a chance to compromise. The people like Balaam, by the way, guess what? The, the name Balaam has a couple different meanings. One of them is to conquer the people. Does that sound familiar to anybody? To conquer the people? Because look at the next group in here. It says right here, in the same way you also have in the church those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. What does Nicolaitan mean? To conquer the people. Remember last week we talked about what does it mean to conquer the people? Well, right here I think we see exactly what it means. To lead people into compromise. To lead people into saying, you know what? I can be 95% committed to Jesus and I can fudge on the other 5% because it's going to help me at work. It's going to help me with my friends. I won't feel so guilty when I go out with them. I can have a little more fun. I don't have to be quite so restricted. That's the whole thing about the Church of Pergamon. It's called the Church of Compromise. I think it should be called the Church of America. I believe most American churches compromise on the exacting standards of Jesus Christ. Ladies, do you know what it takes to be a good wife if you do say amen? That side doesn't know. I heard three women say amen. Every woman in this church, listen to me. Do you know what it means to be a good wife? Yes or no? Yes. Gentlemen, not that you do it. But do you know what it takes to be a faithful husband? Just say yes. Okay, here's the thing. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Okay. We know what it means to be faithful. But sometimes we make excuses. Oh, she made me mad. Oh, she burned my dinner. She threw up my golf clubs. She shot my dog. I don't know what it is that she did. But guess what? No matter what your wife does, you women are going to love this one. Write this down. You're going to need this later in life. Gentlemen, no matter what your wife does, you never, ever, ever have an excuse to be less than a thousand percent committed to her. And the women should say, okay, that's better. I like that one now. Okay, <laughs> ladies, no matter how big a jerk your husband is when he comes home from work, no matter how rude, insensitive, or bad-smelling he is, you never, ever, ever have the right to be less than 100% committed to him. And all the men said, amen. amen. There you go. Because in marriage, as in our relationship with Christ, there's no room for compromise. There's no room to give up and say, you know what? I'm only going to be committed on Sundays or on Tuesdays or on Bible study at Saturday night. We're committed every day. And that means there's no room for other religions, no room for other false gods, no room for playing games. Just like in marriage, we are either all in or we should get out. And quit pretending. Because when you love somebody, you are all in no matter what happens. That's financial collapse. That's cancer. That's car accidents. That's everything. You're in it to win it. You're in it for the long haul. Amen? That's what the people of Pergamon had that was going against them. They had 
they had made peace with the Balaamites, who believed in worshiping all the gods at one time. They were holding to the Nicolaitans, who wanted to conquer them by leading them into compromise. That's why in Titus is so important for me as a pastor that I am told in Titus, I must stand on sound doctrine. I must refute those who say anything contrary to the word of God. I am not allowed to be nice. I am not allowed to make peace. My job is to state the truth and to oppose openly anybody who would speak about compromise or weakening our commitment to Christ. You realize that, right? Titus is my call to pastoral excellence. I have to oppose anybody and everybody who would in any way water down the word of God. So sometimes if I'm a little harsh, if I'm a little strong, do this for me. Go back and check the facts. See if I'm right. If I'm right, stay with it. If I'm wrong, tell me. If I have unjustly accused somebody of compromise or if I have unjustly highlighted somebody's ministry because they're just a complete you know, bag of water with a leak in it, then so be it. Just let me know. But my job is to really to silence them, it says in Titus. Silence those who oppose Christ. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Revelation 2, verse 17, and that is our end. So, conflict causes us to choose. And some of those choices are painful. It's painful to leave everybody behind and strike out for Christ. That didn't sound good. Okay, we have a rescue agent going to the cause. Okay, good. Revelation 2, 17. Past the pain of making choices, there will be peace. There will be peace after that. Look what it says. 17. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the, and on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, those of you who love mysterious stuff, this is your time to shine. This is your mysterious stuff right here. People pounce on this stuff because they go, okay, what's the stone? What does it symbolize? What's the name? Can I know it now? Can I know somebody else's? This is the important stuff right here. Anyone who has an ear, this phrase is simple. Anybody who is willing to listen. Just because you have ears, just because you can hear my voice, doesn't mean you've heard it. When it says anyone who has an ear, anyone who is willing to listen to and be changed by the word of God, listen to what it says. It says, you should listen to the Spirit, uh, what, what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor, that's the one who overcomes compromise. That's the one who doesn't give in to the Nicolaitans, doesn't give in to the Balaamites, doesn't give in to all those things that happen when we get around the worldly people in our lives. It says this, to them I will give the hidden manna. What's he talking about? Where do we encounter manna in the Old Testament? In the desert. Okay, they're in the desert. There's no food out there. They're kicking around for 40 years, and there's no Burger Kings, no Jack in the Box. You know, there's not even a Shakey's Pizza in the middle of the desert. There's nothing. So what does God do? He provides. Every day the manna comes at, at morning. You get up early, you go out, you gather the manna. You have enough for one day, right? On the sixth day of the week, you go out and you gather two, two handfuls or two allotments. Because on Sunday, on the Sabbath day, there will be no manna. Because on the Sabbath day, you don't work. So you have enough for two days there. But you can't keep it beyond that because it won't keep. You have to go daily to gather what you need. Amen? 
Give us this day our daily bread. You can't live on it for three or four or five days. Manna would be dead the next day. It would be dissolved. Only on the Sabbath would the miracle of preservation allow the manna to keep for two days. It's very cool how God does that. So he says, I will give him the hidden manna. That's God's provision in dry places. So if you're willing to stand up to the world, stand up to friends, stand up to teachers, stand up to co-workers, stand up to know-it-all doctors, if you're willing to do that, God will give you a source of strength that they will never see. You will suddenly develop a backbone. Somebody once said, most people who go to church in America are spiritual invertebrates. I had to learn that word. It's a big one. Do you know what an invertebrate is? No spine. Do you know those people? I know those people. I have had those people in my life my whole life. There's a lot of people with no spines, right? So suddenly, we need to overcome being invertebrates. We need to grow a spine. We need to grow a backbone. And that happens through the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. He gives us spiritual strength to stand up, to say, no, I don't want to join that club. I don't want to join that group. I don't want to be president of this society if it means compromising my faith in Christ. I'm willing to let it go and lean on God for the strength that I need. I'm willing to say no to that man or no to that young lady who isn't a believer because God will give me the person I need. That's the truth of it. That's what hidden manna is, church. That's where it comes from. But now look at this also. Isaiah 62.2. Isaiah 62.2 says this. Nations will see your righteousness and all kings will see your glory. You will be called by a new name that the Lord's mouth will announce. Now that goes right to our next point. He says this. I will give him a white stone and on the stone is a new name. In Isaiah 62, 2, what he's talking about is I will give you a name that is blessed. In Isaiah 62, he talks about a change in Israel. He says, you will be called desolate. But when I give you this new name, your name will be blessed. You have a name, lonely, outcast, barren. You will become then a friend of God. You will become fruitful. You will become abundant. See, when God gives a new name, he changes everything about you. Can you guys think of some different people in the Bible who suddenly had a name, a name change? Saul became Paul. Sarah, Sarai became Sarah. Abram became Abraham. Anybody understand why those are important, those two? The only difference between Sarai and Sarah is what? One, one letter, and it, it's called a he in Hebrew. It's not a letter. It's a breath mark. He. It's not just a letter. It's a breath. Interestingly enough, it's the same symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have Sarai before. God breathes on her. She becomes Sarah. Abram is breathed on by God. He is changed to Abraham. God adds his breath, and the name changes. The most striking is Jacob, of course. Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob, the supplanter, becomes Israel, the father of nations. Think about when God breathes on us, he changes us. He gives us a new name. He says, you who were not 
of the family are now of the family. You who are outcast are now accepted. It's amazing. Because when God accepts us, when he, in essence, gives us that new name, that's, that's a huge thing. But then you're asking, what's the white stone? What does the white stone have to do with my new name? Real simple. There were two places where white stones show up in the Old Testament, and then we're done. The first one was in judgment. There were some cities of the Greek world where they gathered together the ecclesia, a called-out group who would make a judgment in a court case. And because nobody wanted to be the one to vote for execution, right? Nobody wanted to. They would each be given two stones. And on the stone would be a white stone and a black stone. If the person was innocent, you would throw in the white stone. If the person was guilty, you would throw in the black stone. If you got the black stone, just like as a pirate, you got the black spot, you were guilty, you were dead. If you received all white stones, you were innocent. Think about it, church. You're receiving a white stone with a new name on it. That symbolizes your innocence. You were guilty before God. Then Jesus comes, and now your stone is white. You were outcast from the kingdom of heaven. Then God breathes on you. You are pronounced innocent, and now you're a member of the kingdom. Do you see that amazing change? Where does the change come from? The change comes from the fact that we no longer cling to the world, the world's standards, the world's idea of righteousness, the world's idea of holiness, I mean, if you want to be holy in this world, give money to charity. People will call you a saint. If, if, if you go and help people in India, or you go help people in the slums of Pittsburgh, they'll call you a saint. What does it take to become a true saint of God? Believe in the one whom God has sent. Remember? The young, the young man asked Jesus, what do I do to work the works of God? Believe in the one whom God has sent. Then he breathes on you. You are pronounced innocent. You have a new name. You were a sinner. What are you now? Saint. Remember I told you, don't ever tell me that you're just a sinner, because you're not. Sinner has to do with your position. There was a time, ladies, when you were single women, and then your husband asked you to marry him, and in a fit of foolishness, you said yes. Now you are called what? Lord. I mean, a wife. Yes. <laughs> yes, dear. Anyways, so that happens. There's that change that happens when we enter into a new relationship. Church, that's it. That's what happens when you get a new name. It was girlfriend. Then you got the name fiance. Then you arrive. You are Lord. I mean, wife. Same thing. Okay, that's good. I got to stay in good measure. I got to go home with her, so I'm not going to get in trouble. Anyways, so hopefully the conflict and the confusion is now solved. We start off by saying, I'm so confused by the world I live in. I'm so confused by the choices. Well, guess what? That conflict is now resolved. Look at this. Following Christ will bring us into conflict with those who obey the spirit of this age. You know what the spirit of the age is, right? Whatever you see on television... Whatever you see on CNN, whatever you see on the History Channel, whatever a teacher tells you, whatever a book proclaims, that's the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age is, I can be wise 
on my own. I can have my own standards. I can be my own God. That's the spirit of this age. But you know what? When you follow Christ, you are in direct conflict with everything this world stands for. And you have to know that's going to happen. The world is not going to love you if you say there is one God, there is one Lord, one Savior, one baptism. The world will not love you for that. They will hate you for it. Two, these choices concerning obedience will be painful, but cannot be avoided. They can't be avoided. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you're going to encounter pain in your life. Broken relationships. You're going to have jobs that you can't take. You're going to have positions that are not open to you because you are faithful to God. You have different standards. You have a different standard of life. And that is painful. And that cannot be avoided. Gentlemen, you married your wife. Guess what? What was the first symbolic act you committed? You took your little black book, the encyclopedia, and you burned it, right? Gentlemen, for the sake of your marriages, say, yes, I burned that. Yes, yes, okay. You took your phone and you deleted the names of every girl you had ever known, all 758 of them. Girls, you, you, you took that one phone card that you, you had from the last guy you dated and you burned it too, right? Notice the women said nothing. I've discovered women never burn their old phone books. They take little, little black markers and then they go through certain names. That's a keepsake. Yep, that's what I thought. It's hard to let go of the past. But guess what? When you move from death into life, from singleness into marriage, not the same thing, by the way. Because if you're still single, enjoy it while it lasts. Trust me. Okay. Whatever you do, whatever that change is, guys, we don't look back. We don't go backwards. We don't think about the past. We go forwards with that relationship that we're in. Finally, this. The rewards of following Jesus are peace with God and a completely new identity. You have a completely new identity in Christ. You don't have to be conformed to what you were, where you were born, who you were born. Uh, you may have been born like me into a bunch of mountain people making moonshine, running snakes, doing strange things. I mean, my family's interesting, but that's okay. I'm not them. That's where I came from. That's where I was born. That's where I was raised. But I don't have to be them. Because God gave me a new identity. He gave me a new personality. He gave me a new sense of my future and my place in the world. And you know what? It's not being a traitor to turn your back on something less for something more. To say, you know what? That was great. This is better. This is better. All right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this time. And um, Father, I just ask you, Lord, to reach into all of our hearts right now. Father, show us that what we've left behind is nothing compared to what we have now. Father, I know the age that we live in wants us to compromise. It wants us to accept things that are not of Christ. It wants us to say all roads lead to heaven. We can just coexist. We can all have our own path, and they all get there. And Father, we know that's a lie. Because Father, all of these things cannot be true, Father. So God, give us the strength to make our choice to choose how we will live, to choose whom we will serve. And Father, you have called us by your name. You've called us from death into life, from sinner into saint. And God, I ask you right now to give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to do that. Father, and I ask you right now for those who are here, for those who have not made that decision, for those who are, who are fighting with that decision right now, 
Lord, help them as they examine their life and as they see, Lord, that you might be knocking at the door of their life. Father, you might be inviting them to this wonderful journey. Father, help them to open the door, as the song says, and to invite you into their life. To, Father, to give up all that stuff that doesn't work for the one sure, certain, safe path in this life that is in the footsteps of the Savior. Father, as we rise to sing, Father, I pray that we would be deepened in our commitment, that, Father, we would be more excited than ever about following you and knowing who you are and and what you want to do with our lives. Father, I just pray that we would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and sing one last time this great song. As always, if anyone has questions, I'll be around after the service. Let's sit down, let's talk, let's walk it through.